Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Matthew Ball. He is the CEO of Apillion Co. and the former head of global strategies at Amazon Studios. His new book is The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything, which is published by our friends at Liberate Publishing Company. Matthew, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here, Matthew. And um, first of all, can you tell me, did I pronounce the name of your company correct? Is it Apillion Co. or is it some other pronunciation? Yeah, that's it, Apillion. Excellent. And what does the company do? What do you do there? So Apillion is a diversified holding company, which basically means we do a whole number of different things. There's early stage venture investing, primarily in gaming and metaverse adjacent businesses. We also have a research arm, again, focused on those two themes, corporate and venture advisory. And then we produce TV, film, and video games. Next month, we have The Walking Dead, The Last Mile, which is an interactive TV video game experience that airs exclusively on Facebook Watch. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much. Matthew, I'll have to check that game out. Um, now on to this wonderfully informative book, the metaverse. You open your book by writing about Vannevar Bush, who did some work in the 1930s. Uh, what is this work and how does it relate to the internet as we know it? So I opened the book by talking about Vannevar Bush because he's an individual who has had an outsized influence on multiple decades of technological innovations. I use that as a narrative through line in two ways. First, Neil Stevenson, the science fiction author who coined the term metaverse, has taken on a similar role, but not in government, but instead as a author. But Vannevar Bush is also connected deeply to the theme of the metaverse. In the 1940s, he described what he called the memex, the memory extender. We would think of it today as a computer with access to the internet, in that it was a desk-sized device at the time, that interconnected almost all information by keyword rather than traditional hierarchy, A to Z, topic to topic, but instead richly integrated. Now he described this in the 40s publicly, began working on it in the 30s, and then 40 years later, that ended up being used as the basis for hypertext or HTML, those links that you see on the internet. And in the interim, of course, Vannevar Bush ran what we now consider to be NASA. He was instrumental in influencing the development of the internet at large through government. And so we see him as proof of how much earlier we often think about technologies relative to when they emerge. Also the outsized impact an individual can have on shaping the future through ideas. And then thirdly, the fundamental idea of hypertext or hyperlink is to 2D internet, what we imagine the metaverse to be to 3D space, which is deep interconnection in virtual worlds rather than just a website to web page. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm curious, uh, Matthew, have you ever read Walter Benjamin's The Arcades Project? I haven't. Yeah, it's a work that came out um, 
in the early 19th century, it's attempting to recreate uh, a certain era of France, but it uses a very, um, a very similar hierarchical structure that led to a hypertext, et cetera. I really recommend that you check that out. It's a really cool book. Um, oh, I'll have to do that. One of my favorite things about writing this book is I work hard to detail this extended history. Obviously, I, I've missed one such antecedent, but about describing how the metaverse, yes, the term comes from 1992's Snow Crash, but the yeah. ideas have been combined and mixed through nearly a century of written work. Neuromancer, most famously in 1984 from William Gibson, but a few years earlier, we get to Baudrillard, philosopher. In the 1950s, we get a cascade of these ideas from Philip K. Dick, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, and the trouble with bubbles, the belt, uh, the naked sun. And then in the 30s, Pygmalion's goggles, or spectacles, rather, where we start to experience different people playing with these ideas of a parallel plane of existence, a virtual reality devices of 3D projection and holography, artificial intelligence nurseries, the idea that we as a society might move primarily to interaction like you and I are doing right now, but rendered in 3D. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Matthew. And I wanna get back to Neil Stevenson in a minute, but first, uh, Matthew, you spend the entirety of the first section of this book explaining what the metaverse is. Uh, what is the metaverse and what is the definition of the metaverse that you landed on at the end of this section? Sure. The metaverse is a tough subject. And the reason why I say this is we've learned for decades that every new era of computing, only understanding tend not to illuminate too much of the future. And by that, I mean, if we go to 1995 today, we can look at the descriptions and definitions of the internet and see exactly why they were right. They predicted, they spoke about everything that we can do today. And yet at the time, WhatsApp, Snapchat, TikTok, Salesforce, iOS, none of these things were clear at the time. And so as a result, I try to explain the metaverse in three different ways. The first is to understand it as a fourth era of computing and networking. The first was the mainframe era, 1950s to the late 1970s. The second was the PC and fixed line internet era from the early 80s until the mid 2000s. And then the third was the cloud and mobile era, which we've been living in for roughly 17 years or so. The metaverse will be the fourth. And in each of those ways, we fundamentally change who accesses computing and networking resources, when, where, why, and how. The second way to think about the metaverse is to put it in context of the internet, what it can and cannot do. The internet is this incredible creation. It spans 40,000 different networks, millions of different servers, billions of different websites, millions of different applications and software stacks, and billions of different servers. However, almost all of that, despite the enormity of its reach and integration with different parties, is two-dimensional. We want to think of the metaverse as a 3D elevation of the internet. And that technical distinction explains why we think of it as different, much like we would say mobile is different than PC, even if the technologies are very similar. And it also illuminates why this is so technically hard. 
3D is not just 50% harder because we've got one more dimension, it fundamentally changes the technology required. The third and final way to think about the metaverse is from an experiential human perspective. And it's a belief that we will establish an effective parallel plane of existence in virtual space for all of humanity. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, uh, Matthew. Now, back to Neil Stevenson for just a moment. Um, you've alluded to this a little bit, uh, but for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Neil Stevenson's work in Snow Crash specifically, um, how did Neil Stevenson anticipate uh, the metaverse in his novel Snow Crash? So Neil was such a fun individual because the extent and range of his contributions to modern tech is still a little bit underappreciated. That's one of the reasons why I talk about Vannevar Bush, because many of your listeners will know him, but most people don't, even though we're influenced by his product day to day. In his many books, The Diamond Age is actually perhaps the most accurate. He talks about ideas such as decentralized computing, cryptocurrencies, the idea of hyperinflation in the United States that fragments us regionally based on our political views. But in Snow Crash, he talks about the idea of a virtual plane of existence where almost everyone who can lives out part of their life there. He describes this enormous parallel world where everyone, no matter whether you're a politician in the real world or a pizza delivery boy, can mm-hmm be someone new. Over the past 30 years, nearly every tech titan has sourced some of their ambition, some of their understanding of the present and our likely future based on what he wrote. Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, his private spacecraft company, the sole primary or the sole competitor to Elon Musk SpaceX, Jeff hired Neil Stevenson as his first employee. The Google Earth team that they tried to hire Neil Stevenson in the 90s because of Snow Crash and then built the company around his vision all the same. The CEO of Google has said that he predicted most things that we're still struggling to understand today. And most of that stems to the idea of the metaverse, which is also a term he coined. Right, thank you so much. Neil Stevenson has some amazing ideas and I'm glad that you brought up cryptocurrencies because Neil is my guest for who is uh, Satoshi Nakamoto if I had to wager. Um, But speaking of this, what do cryptocurrencies have to do with the metaverse? Cryptocurrencies and blockchains are an interesting discussion point because they're often conflated with the metaverse. And this is because blockchains and cryptocurrencies are part of the so-called Web3 movement. And the Web3 movement wants to rewrite the fundamental underpinnings of the internet as we know it today to disempower mega platforms and to better enfranchise individuals. Because those technologies are described as Web3 and we're in the Web 2.0 era, and because the metaverse is also described as a successor to today's internet, we inherently intertwine. Two things that both succeed the current thing, that being the internet, are doubtlessly going to be interconnected. But there are a few people who believe that cryptocurrencies are a strict requirement for the metaverse. Like most technologies, they can and can't be a part. They may be better or less well-suited to the future. But most people are not yet certain as to whether or not the metaverse requires cryptocurrencies or 
What we do know is that they're a potential Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matthew. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Matthew Ball. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Matthew Ball, author of The Metaverse, which is published by our friends at Liberite Publishing Company. Matthew, let's talk about video games. The closest that we have come in the present day to creating a metaverse is in video games. Can you explain this to our listeners? So we want to think of the metaverse as a virtual and parallel plane of existence. We don't technically have the ability to pull that off today. All we can really pull off are series of much smaller virtual worlds, both in terms of their geographic size, a few kilometers in each direction, as well as the number of participants. We kind of struggle to get 20 or 50, sometimes 100 if we cheat on the technical specifications into a space. But so while the metaverse, as we fully imagine it, remains far off from today, the antecedents have existed for decades, and those come from video games. They have been producing virtual worlds for decades, creatively designing them, technically offering them, and also becoming experts at navigating around what the technology can and cannot do. The best technology is indistinguishable from magic, but the best technologists find ways to make magic out of what shouldn't be possible. And so that all comes from the video game. And so as we chart forward, it's interesting to consider how the metaverse, which to many, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, KPMG, McKinsey, PricewaterhouseCooper, all imagined to be a multi-trillion dollar opportunity, video games, a relatively small portion of our global economy, a small portion of consumer leisure even, seem to be at the forefront. Right. Thank you so much. Um, my son, Van, is six years old. Uh, he is sort of obsessed with Minecraft right now. Uh, do you think that these kids who are his age who know how to live, move, and build in worlds like Minecraft or Roblox at such an early age are going to be more ready for the metaverse if and when it arrives than others? Totally. And we've seen this decade after decade. So much of this change depends on not just technological capabilities, but generational change. I like to think in three different pitches. Number one is when we have this technology where we finally hit a breakthrough point. Obviously, the iPhone was an example of that. And that's the first big unlock, when the technology is ready. But the second often comes from when a new generation is able to use that device on mass. Took about 
five to 10 years for the iPhone and iPad native generation to be able to use entertainment, to use consumer electronic devices, to make selections of their own, right? That's the difference between putting your kid in front of Disney Plus on an iPad and your child deciding what they want to do, when, where, and why with an iPad. That's the second pitch. And we often discover that their habits and wants and needs are quite different. Why? Because they grew up with different alternatives, with different thinking mindsets. The third hitch is still in front of us, at least as relates to 3D rendered virtual worlds. And that is when those consumers and to some extent early creators, right? Your amateur hobbyist who's YouTube, who's a YouTuber or creating a Minecraft, start to become innovators and pioneers of global consequence. We saw this 15 years ago. Mark Zuckerberg in his early 20s, a child of the 90s internet who creates the world's largest social platform in the 2000s. Evan Spiegel, the creator of Snapchat, younger than Mark, grew up in the early mobile internet era and creates Snapchat. And so this third pitch reflects not just the users of these technologies, not just those for whom the new thing is more native, but who brings together their unique way of thinking about this new frontier to produce the products that will ultimately define that era. In other words, we are currently at a state in which the products of the metaverse are being produced by those who predated it. The next wave will be those who were born and fundamentally shaped by the early experiences of the Absolutely. Thank you so much, Matthew. Um, as you've alluded to a couple of times, the metaverse does not yet exist. The computational power to create a metaverse and sustain a metaverse has not yet been harnessed. But how do Netflix and other streaming entertainment technologies anticipate the computing technology that will be necessary for the creation of a metaverse? So one of the things that's important about understanding technological ways is that they don't suddenly switch flip. That's not how things happen. Societally, we can often identify these key moments, but technology is more diffuse. I use the example of the current era, the mobile era of computing. When did it start? Most of us think 2007, 2008, that's when the first iPhone came out, but it was really the second iPhone that was the major leap. And that's because it had 3G, which made the mobile internet actually usable, and the App Store, which gave us things to use the mobile internet for. But the mobile internet began in 1973, one might argue, the first cell phone. 1991 was the first time we actually had a digital wireless network. Before then, you couldn't actually have the mobile internet, you just had a mobile device. In 1992, we have the first smartphone, an IBM device, but of course, no one used it. By the end of the 1990s, we have the first mobile internet technologies, such as wireless application protocol. If you remember, that's when you could access a primitive version of the internet on a white background, with blue and purple and red links. That's all you saw when you went to bbc.com and the New York Times. In the ensuing years, we had Blackberry, the early smart razor phones. In Japan, we had these first mobile native content and media services. That's where ringtones began. And so where did mobile start? Somewhere on that spectrum. 
What we know is by 2014, half of Americans had a smartphone. By 2016, half of those globally over the age of 13 had a smartphone. But there's no specific time of when it was ready, when mobile was created. Why do I tell the story? Well, with the metaverse, we can think of these key moments in Around 2015, 2016, we had these leaps where consumer-grade devices could finally profit a dynamic virtual environment that dozens of people could co-experience using a standard device, not a multi-passenger computer. We think of that as a leap. Perhaps we'll make it akin to 3G, the moment where all of a sudden we felt like the mobile internet was good enough for the average person. But when you're talking about the full vision, which really is the start of the question, we seem far out. Intel, the head of their advanced computing group, says that they believe a 1,000-factor increase in computing power is required to pull off the metaverse as we imagine. We might want to think of that as saying, if we just entered 3G, 6G is what we require. And of course, right now we're still on 5G, some 17 years after 3G. Right, thank you, Matthew. Um, so I keep saying metaverse, we keep talking about the metaverse. Uh, what is the likelihood, Matthew, that there will be one metaverse as opposed to multiple metaverses? It's a great question. And a lot of this actually comes down to semantics. Note that with the internet, we talk about the internet. We don't say an internet. We don't come home and choose which internet we log on to. We don't say that there is a Google internet and a Facebook internet and an Apple internet. Those are, of course, varyingly horizontal or vertical software and or hardware-based platforms, which are either exclusively on the internet or primarily function on. And so we should think of the metaverse similarly, a unified experience that isn't necessarily exactly consistent, right? Different design principles. Sometimes you need a different identity system. Some accept Facebook. Some require their own account system. Some accept Google, but not Facebook account system. That's the metaverse. That does not mean, of course, that we won't have very close and relatively unique virtual platforms within the no one would confuse Google with the internet. No one would confuse Google and Facebook services. But that's how we should think about it. And yet, at the end of the day, the term isn't what matters. The internet named anything else would still be the internet. And so we may find out that the metaverse comes to fruition, but under a different name. We might just say the internet. We might say the 3D internet. In China, they're talking about hyper-digital reality. The word doesn't matter. What matters is this idea of a unified experience, an elevation of the internet protocol suite to accommodate three-dimensional interoperability. Thank you so much, Matthew. Finally, you alluded uh, to Mark Zuckerberg earlier, and I now want to ask you about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Many people are unfamiliar with Neil Stevenson. Many people are unfamiliar with Roblox, Fortnite, and World of Warcraft. Many people are unfamiliar with the concept of the metaverse, but almost everyone is familiar with Facebook. 
I mention this because now when you bring up the metaverse to someone who is outside of the realms and markets that deal with these technologies on a daily basis, they now affiliate the metaverse with Facebook, even though Facebook really has absolutely nothing to do with any attempts at the metaverse thus far other than by the purchase of Oculus and their VR technologies. My question, Matthew, is was it a brilliant move by Mark Zuckerberg to rebrand Facebook as Meta in 2022? You are certainly right that the topic of the metaverse has been strongly correlated with the vision and the product of Facebook, and to some extent, perceptions of Facebook as a company and steward on the internet. As I mentioned a moment ago, the term itself is not that important. Whether or not Facebook succeeds, Oculus succeeds, Mark Zuckerberg succeeds, is not going to sway whether or not the metaverse emerges. I often like to issue the term itself and just talk about 3D simulation, or what we often call graphics-based computing. Both of those are secular trends, partly because they allow us to solve problems we can't otherwise solve, or they offer experiences which we know are superior to the 2D experiences of old. But when you're talking about was it a brilliant move, I think we can underestimate its utility. Many people think that it was primarily about attracting consumers. Well, there isn't really a metaverse product to buy, and to the extent one wants to say Horizon World, their virtual platform for avatars, or Oculus is a metaverse product, no one's going to buy those things because Facebook changed their name. And no one's going to keep using them because Facebook changed their name. But more broadly, the name change is symbolic to different constituencies. It tells shareholders what they're going for, how deeply they believe it, and that if they don't support that vision, they should sell out of the stock. And to some extent, we've seen that. It tells partners where they're going and what their priorities are. It tells current employees the same. And it also is a powerful signal to prospective employees. The utility of that is meaningful. Many companies fall by the wayside during platform shifts. Most do, in fact. Microsoft was dominant in the PC era, missed out on the mobile era. And so I think we can think of this as this gambit to own a space. But I think it's more likely that this was about telling everyone for whom Meta platforms ultimately rely customers, shareholders, current employees, future employees, partners, what they want to achieve so that they can all rally behind this multi-decade, extraordinarily difficult future vision. Absolutely. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you for writing this wonderfully informative book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Matthew Ball, author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything, which is published by our friends at Liverite Publishing Company. Matthew, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank Matthew Ball for joining me. Copies of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quellridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook 
and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking. Quail Ridge Books is Raleigh's trusted community bookstore, hosting author events, book clubs, writing workshops, and more since 1984. Visit them in North Hills, Lassiter District in Raleigh, North Carolina, or online at www.quailridgebooks.com.